0: You're listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast that features interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm your host, Mike Costa of Costa Media Advisors. My guest this week is Gideon Thomas. Gideon is the founder and owner of Sirius Healthcare. Born and raised in Chattanooga, a city high school graduate and musical theater major, Gideon pursued her undergraduate degree at Florida A&M and her MBA at UTC. This launched Gideon on a career in HR at places like Booz Allen Hamilton, TVA, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Tennessee, and Unum. It was a series of family events that led Gideon to be a healthcare entrepreneur. Gideon, before we talk about your switch from the corporate world to conceiving and starting serious healthcare, tell me, what's in your morning cup? Chassis Latte. With a little espresso. You make it yourself? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite coffee shop?
1: Uh, right across the street, it is... Becaffeinated? Caffeinated? Becaffeinated Caffeinated. Yeah. Be caffeinated is my favorite. The place, the coffee, the service, the people, it's amazing.
0: It's growing too.
1: Man, rightfully so.
0: Well, welcome to My Morning Cup. I'm really glad that uh, we get a chance to talk. Uh, this time on the podcast, we talk quite a bit here in the office because both Gideon and I are located in the Business Development Center and we're sweet mates. And I find your story fascinating. So let's talk about that. You're a musical theater major. How's that lead HR?
1: Oh, gosh. So musical theater was a high school thing mm-hmm. and it was an opportunity to travel all around the world. Um, if you aren't familiar with Chattanooga
0: High School. This is the one that's up at the top of the hill that is now the the Center for Performing Arts?
1: Yeah, Center for Performing Arts. Uh, When I went, it was a school within a school. And so we had a regular school and then there was a performing arts school. And so we um, had a touring group called Choo Choo Kids and we had the opportunity to tour all around the world. Um, One of the highlights, I think, is when we got to perform in the Sydney Opera House. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so it was just a really cool opportunity. Great school, great opportunity for kids to get exposure, but I have some friends that went to Juilliard. I have some other ones that are on Broadway. So even thinking about Chattanooga and thinking about the education system here and the opportunities, it's so many little pockets of greatness that come out of this place that we don't even think about. We should celebrate them too. We should celebrate them so much more than we do.
0: Yeah. And I don't know this about you. What is your uh, what is your specialty? Are you a singer or I a musician? this
1: was twenty five years I know, ago. But you're still
0: a young person. <laughs> yeah.
1: Back then I used to love to dance sing and act. I loved the stage back then. Right now I would love to hide from every <laughs> opportunity to be in front of a camera or on a stage
0: that I can. I understand. <laughs> but those skills will come in handy. They always do. So you were at City High School and you Mm decided to go to Florida A&M. Why Florida A&M?
1: My girlfriend at the time, she was like, my aunt is there. She'll get us jobs. And I wanted to go to HBCU. And then I didn't want to be close, right? A lot of people in Chattanooga, if you're from here, it doesn't matter what school you went to. Most people go about between 250 miles away. Um, It's just the culture of what we do. So I wanted to be somewhere different. I wanted to meet new people and start over. So my friend, we had decided we were going to Florida A&M, went through the whole process. We were supposed to be sweet mates. And I called her that summer and I was like, couldn't get in contact with her so back then right this was 1999 if you called people you'd get the house phone right <laughs> so one day I called and I got her mom on the phone and she was like she's not going to college that girl is pregnant so I went from oh I'm going to this place with one of my dear friends and this is gonna be a great experience to I am moving you know forever away six seven hours away by myself. To this HBCU that um, has it's this, in Tallahassee right? It's in Tallahassee Florida yeah. and they have this amazing business program Yeah, and so I was really excited about getting into this business program got some scholarships and was going to Tallahassee to live and so it was it was great
0: That's a good experience. But you came home and you you got your MBA at UTC? Yeah. Came
1: straight home um, right after. Got my MBA at UTC and was really grateful to be here because my grandfather had gotten sick. So if I wouldn't have come home, because I used to have this rule where I can only be in Chattanooga for 24 hours, (laughs) I just would feel like this town wasn't the pace Wasn't fast enough. Mm -hmm. And so, if I stayed here too long, that I would slow down myself. So, I had this 24 hour rule that I could be here 24 hours, even if I shot off to Atlanta, shot off to Nashville, whatever it was, I wouldn't stand here for more than 24 hours. And so, once I I got back and was able to spend time with my grandfather before he passed away, and that was the year, um, yeah, I was in graduate school.
0: Well, that's a good thing you got to spend time with him. Yeah, and
1: it's such a privilege. Every time you think it's something in your life that isn't good. When you look back, it's always extremely purposeful and it has a value that you didn't assign to it at the time.
0: Oh, that's the value of being able to revisit those memories. So you graduate from UTC with an MBA and you get into the HR world. Was HR something you wanted to pursue or just what was available?
1: Talent has always been my thing. When you talk about musical theater, when you talk about anything that I love talent. Mm -hmm. And so getting to find people that maybe not know how great they are or where they, because they haven't been placed in the right fit and being able to say, if you were here and you bring those skills here, you would value yourself more. You would know who you are more is what attracted me to being in HR. And so that talent side was, it's really a, addictive. it's like you're feeding yourself every time you put somebody in the right place because you get to see them grow and flourish in a way that they wouldn't. If you have somebody that was this very regimented and they were in a role that was had a lot of superfluous you know opportunities and then you put them in something that has structure mm-hmm. and you see them grow, you're like, man, this is awesome. So every single time you place somebody in the right place and you watch the joy, in their journey, it fuels you. So HR is amazing.
0: That's a perspective I really haven't heard on HR before. So you're, <laughs> you're in the talent acquisition portion I of it. love talent, you're, you're yeah. You're not in the, come and sit down, we need to talk to you <laughs> portion of HR.
1: For a time, um, I had a life cycle. So I would bring people in and usher them out as necessary. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I did the whole life cycle. But it, it still is invigorating because when you let somebody go – If you can give them the right feedback, and sometimes you might have somewhere else that's a better fit for them, too. So it still is about being released from something that doesn't benefit them and backs them into what their right yes is.
0: That's a great perspective because having been someone that's had to let people go, (laughs) it's always a hard thing to do but to take the perspective of let's find where your best fit is. Let me help you spread your wings, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. So talk a little bit about the corporate side of your career because you're in a very different side of it now.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the corporate side of my career, it has been government, corporate, um, fortune right at Fortune 250, and nonprofit. I had a little nonprofit stint, and all of them are just really, really different. And so in that space, I, all of them, I had the opportunity to be in that talent world in that HR world. Mm-hmm. And in that you learn that organizations are different, but people are the same.
0: Talk a little bit about that. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean?
1: <laughs> um, everybody, the heart of people is that you want to be valued. You want to be heard and you want to make a difference and that's it. Yeah. People want to come to work and, and do those things Everybody wants to see that what they did that day has some type of impact. And so if you can frame or create a position for people that at the end of the day, they get to see what their impact was, then your company is always going to flourish and it's always going to grow. And some companies are better at
0: that than others.
1: Um, Companies that are best at it are the ones that it happens organically and they have good leaders. And those leaders and managers and supervisors really understand their impact as well. So it's definitely from the top down. Um, and it's nothing that you can build into your culture based on a statement or based on something that you've written. You have to live it every single day.
0: So it's more about the action instead of Absolutely. tell me, show me Absolutely. what you're going to do.
1: Absolutely. Every day.
0: So you started your corporate career at a fairly young age. and yeah. you Just did a little bit of the progress. Who'd you start with and then... Along the way, because I want to get up to when you start serious health care.
1: Um, yeah. Wow. It was a journey. So um, started out, I was a military spouse. So we were in Virginia and straight out of graduate school. So started out with that Booz Allen Hamilton, did talent there. And then. Hey, they're a law
0: firm, correct? Or, no. no.
1: It's a global. They're a, a global government contractor. Uh. And then ended up coming back home. And once got home, Blue Cross, and then Unum, and that was a longer stint, I think like six years, and was doing, started out in talent, transitioned to talent to doing um, some global talent initiatives, and then from there was still working in talent, but more HRIS, so information systems, Mm -hmm. how we were rolling out, um, change management, those types of
0: things. So you're at Unum, you're there yeah, six years, yeah. you're, you're making a lot of progress in career, but then you have some family events. And no,
1: I, I moved to TBA. I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. so I was at TBA when that happened. I was um, managing their talent team and um,
0: yeah. Let's talk about how you got into serious healthcare. We, we don't have to spend a lot of time on, on what started it because yeah. I really want to talk about your journey as an entrepreneur. But there's always something that triggers it. There's either someone's passion or family (laughs) events, an idea.
1: Yeah, um, so I was sitting at work, and I remember I just kept getting these back-to-back calls, and I couldn't answer because you know how you're at work, you don't answer. And I text my mom, and I was like, hey, this person is calling back-to-back. Like, will you call them? And she texts me back, and she says, Papa got in a wreck. So Papa is my stepdad. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking he broke an arm, broke a leg. It's the end of the day. And I remember pulling up to the hospital. This was pre-COVID. And we kind of, you know, back then you just said who you're there to see and you walk back. And we were sitting in a little area and we see them rolling him back towards us. And he's on the bed and then he's like having this seizure. And I'm looking at her. She's looking at me. And then, you know, all the healthcare people start coming in, saying all these words, doing all this stuff, taking him back, moving stuff. Like it was tragic and we're freaking out because neither one of us are healthcare people like do not call us to put a band-aid on a human (laughs) um so we just are both lost um they said that he um had a seizure which led to this wreck where the highway split so he was on the freeway so he was going pretty fast and the freeway split and he ends up in a like one of those poles and the cars all crashed up His clothes, we saw that they cut them off from the side. So it's like his boots that are cut on the side to try and get him out of everything. So mom and I are just freaking out and they end up putting him in the ICU. So that was, that was my stepdad. And he was in the ICU at Erlanger back up to a year before. My real dad, he was in Alabama. He had a stroke So I get this call from like a DHS kind of agent that says if somebody doesn't come and get him, then we're going to charge the owner of the land with elder abuse. I didn't even know what was going on. Um, It was land that had been passed down Mm -hmm. in my family. So one of my cousins, one of my favorite cousins owned it. He didn't even know what was going on. So I got that call on a Thursday, had moved dad on a Saturday. And my dad was a railroad retiree. So he had like four or five grand a month. And I was like, oh, this is going to be enough to take care of him. Yeah, Got him here. And it was bad. Like four or five grand for elder care is not going to do it.
0: No, not even close anymore.
1: Had no idea. Yeah. It just made sense to me that that was enough. Well, this assisted living ended up taking him. Even though he was nursing home level of care, they were gracious enough to take him just because I think his income was a lot higher than most of the people that were on social security. So the next year is when my stepdad had his wreck. That same week, I get a call that my dad had passed out and they had sent him to Parkridge. So I'm going from one hospital to the other hospital. Wow. So my stepdad, we get this word, he's in the ICU and they say if he lives, he's going to be brain dead. So the neurologist is like, I'm just going to take him off my rounds. Oh. So my mom and I are like sitting there staring at him all day, like his eye fluttered, his toe moved and people are coming like praying for him and stuff. Again, this is pre-COVID, right? So people can come in like on the ICU hours and they're praying and all this stuff. So I get over to the other hospital and I see the other dad and the people are like, he is um, (laughs) so unbelievable. They say that whatever drip they have him on is what's keeping him alive, that he has a heart issue. And this heart issue, they needed to do, like, put a device in or do something. But because of his declining health, it didn't make sense to do the surgery part. So when they take him off this drip, he's probably never going to wake up again. How do you deal with this? (laughs) How? Yeah. Man, God is so big. I was going down to the cafeteria just to get a Coke. Because at the time, I didn't even do caffeine at all. So I was like, I need a Coke. To me, that was like... (laughs) You know, it's like saying I need tequila or something. Yeah, that
0: that was your jolt. That
1: was my jolt. So I was like, I'm going to get a Coke. And I ran into one of my best friends from middle school. And we still talk. Like, I see her literally just randomly in the hospital. You know how big hospitals Mm -hmm. are? I come off the elevator and I start crying and hugging her. And she is like, what the hell is wrong with you? She was dropping somebody off for surgery and she was just sitting there waiting on them. So I am, like, dumping on her out of nowhere. And she's like, oh, my gosh, let's go get you a Coke. So I'm like, oh, oh God, how do you tell somebody that? You know, all this stuff. And she's like, I'm with you, friend. And she's, like, holding my hand. And this is this big, dramatic moment like you see in the movies. And my dad had dementia. And um, I have this big talk with him. And, like, I'm all teary-eyed. And my heart is heavy. And he looks at me. And he's like, yeah, none of us know if we're going to wake up tomorrow. Can I get some pancakes?
0: Wow. <laughs> what a perspective. <laughs> Thanks, Dad.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> so they end up taking him off the drip, and he lives. Oh, wow. So back up, right? He's living. Stepdad is in ICU at Erlanger. My grandmother, before, she had been put in hospice. And a lot of people think, oh, you're in hospice. You're going to die in three days. Yeah. Um, they had said she was going to die a few times. <laughs> Well, she had been in hospice for 5 years and they said wow. that 5 years is too long and they dropped her. All of this happened the exact same week.
0: You know, they say God doesn't give you anything you can't handle, <laughs> but at some point you got to hold up your hands <laughs> and say, "I'm good."
1: <laughs> my mom is looking at me, I'm looking at her, right? And I and I'm I'm having to put this in perspective like, okay, my mom was married to my dad like 25 years. So this is like her first life partner, right? Then this is her second life partner. <laughs> They're both in the hospital, and then that's
0: her mom. Oh, my goodness.
1: Right? And so I'm really having to say if And are you an only child? I have a brother, and my mom adopted him when he was in elementary school. And he's an amazing human Mm -hmm. that is there to help with everything, anything, in any kind of way. But anybody will tell you this, like having girl children and having boy children is just different.
0: (laughs) I went through it with my mother. My my (laughs) sister stepped up while (laughs) –
1: Tell me what you want to do, right? It's like, I'll do whatever if you just tell me. Yes. But it's just different. Um, My brother's amazing in so many ways, but it's like, tell me what you need. My perspective was more like, I'm watching my mother that has had very much more intimate relationships with these people go through this. Mm -hmm. And if she doesn't crack, then I definitely can't crack. And if she doesn't crack, then I have to be... What she needs for me to be, whatever that is.
0: At what point did you say this system is screwed up? I mean, where okay. did that light bulb go off for you?
1: The first light bulb, and it was a series of them, you have to remember if I would have been a nurse, if I would have been a healthcare professional, if I would have known anything, it probably would have gone off a lot sooner. But I wasn't. The day that me and my mom went to the hospital to see my stepdad, I had just came back from Thailand and got this custom three-piece suit made. It had, like, the pants, the vest, and the jacket. It had my name on the inside. (laughs) I had three-inch heels on. You know, like, it was so far from my reality, caregiving or helping people. Like, I couldn't even process it. I just knew it was messed up. So the first one was I was sitting in the hospital with my stepdad, and I had just been there all day. My manager at the time it sent me a text that was sort of like, When are you coming back to work? kind of energy. <laughs> and I sent her a picture of him in his coma. And I remember thinking, There will never be a time when somebody's going to talk to me like this again. Ever. And I was done. That was like the end of that. That was it. That was it. I didn't know what was next, but that was it on that. Mm-hmm. But still focused on my family. And so I was. Very much like, I'm going to take this time and figure out services for my people. When it was my grandmother, it was like, I have this privilege to take care of this person who has always cared for me in so many ways. Uh, My granny was the person that, uh, my pop and granny, both, they were the people that had the the cookouts that everybody came to, that hosted people, that had the parties. What I hated when I was 11, she would cook again every day, a big, huge meal, like what people would call Sunday meals. And she would put them in plates for me to hand out to neighbors that weren't well. So it was this one lady and this lady was in a wheelchair. And I could remember she had family, but they didn't care. Her house was unkept, and I would have to go to her house and I'd have a plastic bag with a plate on it. And it would have, you know, aluminum foil on the top and I would have to go over And take this lady dinner. And nine times out of ten, I would have to take and open up the plate and, like, get her fork and all of that stuff so she could prepare to eat. And I would be miserable. But that was building community, right? That's what my granny knew was important. And so from that and all the things that she had done for me over life, imagine that's what she did for neighbors. So you know all the stuff she did for me. Mm -hmm. It was a privilege to care for her. So I was like, I'm not going back to work. I'm taking this opportunity to spend this time with my granny. So between my mom and I, like we're basically running in circles, right? Trying to figure out who, what, when and where. And I had two small children. It was just who's going to take care of what today? How is somebody going to order dinner? And so my dad, who was in the hospital that was supposed to die, very much did not. He started eating more. He got better. (laughs) And they're like, you have to come and get him. And my my mom and stepdad had been social workers. And um, they're like, no, the social workers will figure it out. The hospital isn't just going to keep paying for him. So I would go see him at the hospital. And the hospital social worker would call me and say, you need to come and get him. And I'd be like, you're going to have to figure it out. And she'd be like, you need to come and get him. And I'd be like, you're going to have to figure it out. Like, we would do this. Just go back. Because the year before, when he first came, I had done everything I could do. I called everybody, I'd emailed everybody, I'd faxed everybody, I'd followed up with everybody. And they're like, oh, he can't have this service. He can't have that service. He doesn't qualify for this. He makes too much money for this. He doesn't make enough money for that. This is like, it was just horrible. And I didn't want to go back to that world. I knew if I took him back, I was going to go back to mm-hmm. that world. He ends up, she puts him in a nursing home in NHC. NHC does an amazing job with him. My dad had been a union rep for the railroad. In that, he felt like his long-term care was supposed to look a certain way forever. So when he went to NHC, he did really, really well when he didn't have a roommate. When they hit capacity, of course, they gave him a roommate. When he got this roommate, he lost it. That particular day, when the guy's family was there, he was cussing, fussing, acting crazy. So finally, the guy's family left. It's supposed to be the evening time, and he just is not piping down. And they come in and try and give my dad a shot to keep him calm. He acts like he's going to be calm. And in turn, he does not. Um, He grabs the needle and he takes and puts the needle in that nurse's arm. So they put him out and he ends up in this 12-bed facility. I think it's with Erlanger in Red Bank that's geriatric psych. You know, at this point... The hospital has enrolled him in some type of emergency system. I didn't know what it was at the time, right? But the insurance calls and it was United. And they're like, we have this program called companionship care. And what we do is we'll pay you to be his caregiver. It only works if you're not, if you don't already live in the home with the person. And since he already didn't live in the house with me, you know, she was able to make it work. I didn't know what the other options were. It just all sounded bad. So I was like, uh, I've been taking care of granny. I, I guess I can do this. So with his income, you know, his regular income and then the state paying us, um, he wouldn't have traditionally qualified for that program. Right. But he was able to whatever emergency services the hospital put him in that put me in a place where, OK, I can live. But as I was telling my story, it's all of these other people that are saying me, too. My parents, too. My loved one, too. And I think about when I was in HR, every time you hear these stories about people that couldn't come to work because they were trying to take care of mom, grandma, granny, granddad, whatever, and uncle. And, and I'm like, this is a pervasive problem. So in the midst of this, my mom and I decide we're going to go on tours just to see what the options are. We go to one place. It smells like pee. It's really, really bad. We go to another place and the director of nursing is taking us on a tour and she stops in her office to drop off some papers and I walk in behind her. Y'all know I'm nosy. I'll get out. And I look on the wall and it says, the people here get two diapers a day. If you need more, use cloth diapers. Oh, wow. And I think about a CNA that's making, you know, 10, 12 bucks an hour using cloth diapers. Like, yeah. It just doesn't track. We go to another place and... So unbelievable. The leadership is taking us on a tour and the the staff member is there and they're supposed to be feeding someone and they have the spoon in one hand and they have their cell phone in the other hand and they're so down deep in their cell phone. They don't even realize that the person they're supposed to be feeding is sitting there like a baby bird trying to get to the spoon. Mm. And the part that made it the worst is the leadership as they're taking us on the tour, they don't go help. They don't go fix it. They don't say anything. They're like, it's hard to find good help. Wow. And keep walking. And I'm like, oh, crap. Now I know it's called community living support. At the time, I thought it was like a group home. So our insurance led us to that, went to this group home, talked to the leadership. I was like, oh, this is going to be great. Talked to corporate. We get to the house. The staff won't even talk to us. Like, they won't even look up, pretty much. This guy, he's in the back. He's whimpering. And we're like, hey, bud, you know, you okay? What's wrong? Basically, he hadn't eaten because he ran out of money. And no one cared. So
0: they just didn't feed him.
1: He didn't have, like, at the time, these people were making, like, 600 bucks a month, and they would take them to the grocery store with, you know, their money and their food stamps and be like, go for it, and let them try and figure it out. They're elderly, and they have intellectual disabilities, and so when they ran out, it was just like, oh, well, you ran out some bread in there.
0: So all of this experience <sighs> exposes the system, and you're looking and you're saying, it's a bad system, number yeah. one, and I'm struggling. I can imagine how other people are struggling. Yeah. How did you conceive serious health care and what the service would be? I never actually conceived
1: it. (laughs) It was never a, this is what it's going to look like. It was literally one step at a time. It was me calling numbers at the state to say, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't even know what license that I need, but I want to help people. What does that look like? What are my options? And every single day it was the next step until finally it was like, oh, this is called community living support and you can get licensed to do it. And then now the fight is getting credentialed with the insurance companies for them to for Medicaid to pay you to do it. So every day was just another inch.
0: So describe what serious health care services are. What do you guys do now?
1: Currently, we have next of kin care and our next of kin care model. You think about next of kin, mm-hmm. right? The whole intent is for it to feel like family. We recruit nurses specifically, and we help them turn their homes into assets. And the way that we do that is we find placement for them, for people, for clients to go into their homes. So it might be elderly people. It might be people with intellectual disabilities. So you can think about it like foster care. hmm So they bring their nursing hearts right to everything they do, but in their private homes. So they get to pick and choose who they service and how they service them and what it looks like. And they have this autonomy. If you've ever been a nurse, I have not. um, You see people taking care of eight patients, 12 patients, 30, and they don't get to pick. Right. So at this point, they get to pick who they want to service. They can do it in their private homes. They have autonomy in what it looks like. What does the day look like? And they are reimbursed by Medicaid through us. And so our nurses in general make right around 180 and it's tax-free because it's like foster care.
0: And so the patient, instead of living in a hospital or an assisted living, is living in a home, maybe even in their old neighborhood.
1: Yes. And so part of what we do that makes, I guess, so innovative, it Doesn't seem innovative to me, but other people say it is, is that we try and find custom cultural connections, right? The things that make you feel safe food, music, what religious holidays do you celebrate? The intent on both ends is to find that perfect match. And yeah, it could be their same neighborhoods, it can be things that
0: feel like home. Yeah. Take that and talk about the entrepreneurial journey.
1: So we came with this model, this next of kin care model. Definitely not by design. It was by disaster. Initially, we were doing community living support houses. It's where you put three people in a home and then you do full-time staff. And ultimately, like, we were literally just breaking even. And outside of that, it's just so hard. It was hard to find people that had the right heart. It had nothing to do with the care, but just had the right heart. We had a nurse They were trying to put in a hospital on a COVID wing. And she very much was.
0: Don't want to do that.
1: She was afraid. Like we were all just afraid. We didn't know. We didn't know. And she didn't want to die is what she said. And so I was licensed to do this from the beginning, but just had never done it. And so I was like, let's figure it out together. And once we figured it out, it was beautiful. And I realized that the care was better because I cannot do what any nurse does on my best day right? It was an elevated level of care and it was an elevated level of care, right? The healthcare part, but then also the community part. Um, and she was grateful because never before had she ever gotten to choose who
0: she serviced. Your HR background probably played a bit in that, making sure <laughs> the other side of the equation was enjoying their job because that gives you purpose and, and fulfillment. How can people find out more about serious health care?
1: Uh, Our website is uh, serioushealthcare.com. If you want to email us, info at com.
0: We could go on and talk for hours. And we do. We we do do. do. in the office all the time. We do. And I enjoy (laughs) that. You know what? I only met you a couple of years ago, but I I love those conversations and I love our friendship. (laughs) Me too. Uh, I do want to ask you one last question. What would you tell your 25-year-old self about what's really important for a happy life.
1: I would tell my 25-year-old self to stop everything you're doing and learn more about your nervous system. And as you learn about your nervous system and how it works and how it impacts your body, to listen to it. Because regardless of what the act that you're performing, the person that you're talking to, the room that you're in, your body. Your brain will lie to you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, your brain will lie to you, but your body will never lie to you. So really get in tune with your nervous system, get in tune with God and stop talking so damn much.
0: What a great point. (laughs) What a great point. And I I like listen to your body when you're 25, because when you're 25, you're indestructible. And then when you get like me and you're 60 and your body's coming back to visit going, hey, bud. (laughs) Remember
1: that time you tried to do this to me?
0: Yeah. Yeah. But that's a very important point because we do feel indestructible at that time. And we also feel if you're building your career, building your business or whatever, that just comes with it.
1: And we compromise. Right. We compromise ourselves in so many ways because we think it might lead to a bigger or better opportunity.
0: It's yeah. always that thing that's just out of reach, that if I could just get if there, I could just get there. you know what, if I could just get there, I'll get in shape. If, if I, I could, could just get, get there, there, I'll quit drinking. You know, if I
1: could just get this amount of money, I'll be around these people. There was a time where, a very long time, when I was the only black person in HR, and it was almost 600 people, I was there and, In retrospect, it was trauma, but I didn't process it as trauma because, you know, the days that the microaggressions of, you know, if I'm going out of town and I get my hair braided and people are going, oh, my gosh, you got your hair braided. And every meeting I had that day started with my hair. It was the smallest pieces of consistent over time, very small things where I was in a culture that the things that I did were so outside of understanding that it would just create these very small fragments that would chip away
0: at me. Do you think those were intentional microaggressions or ignorant microaggressions?
1: I think they were definitely out of ignorance. Mm -hmm. I can remember one time me and this guy, and we we ended up being best friends. He was from Portland, Maine, Maine and he walks up to me and he goes, we're going to have to be friends. And I said, what? And he was like, I love black music. I love black culture. He said, and I've never met a black person in person. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, never. He was like, never. So It is very much you can live in a world with people that are just like you, that think like you, that are that know all the same stuff. It's not that anything is intentionally harmful. It is just a lot of times people haven't made an opportunity to delve into the other side. And so what they think is appreciation
0: it's just really annoyance, particularly when the percentages are out of whack. It's, out, it's
1: or- out of whack. And so if you're in that environment and that's your thing, right, you have to make the decision of how that feels to you. And you have to make the decision that a decision that if it has an impact on you, what are you going to do about that? Yeah. Because the impact that it has on you is more important than the exposure that the other people get. So take your feelings and how it feels in your
0: body yeah, and put that first. I love the way you put that. I read a daily, uh, it's not a devotional, but it's called the daily stoic. And it's not what happens to you. It's how you react to what happens to you. And you are ultimately in charge of that. Yep. This has been a fascinating conversation. Hey. We're going to have more. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.